Stay hungry, stay foolish. Since How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci was published in 1998, it's been translated into 25 languages and has inspired people all over the world. A Polish elementary school teacher uses the seven principles to organize her class curriculum. Heads of strategy for consulting firms discovered Leonardo as a valuable ally in helping multinational clients solve some of their most important business problems. Parents have said, this book gave me everything I always wanted to teach my children, but didn't have the words to say. We live in a world of unprecedented change and disruption, but we're all born of the sun and traveling towards it. How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci is a guidebook inspired by one of history's great souls for that journey. This book is an invitation to breathe the vivid air, to feel the fire in your heart's center and the full flowering of your spirit. We welcome specialist in innovation and creativity, founder of the High Performance Learning Center and author of 15 books, Michael J. Gelb. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. It's fantastic to have you on the show. You had an amazing career. And before we talk about Leonardo and the inspiration that he's given you and through you, so many people in the world, it'd be great to share your story of how this all happened, because I think that says so much about your own spirit. Wow. Well, you know, because people say, how long did it take you to write this book? And and the answer is always my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) And it's amazing that it's the 20 year anniversary of the initial release of the book, but people around the world seem to be gaining enthusiasm about the ideas because they're probably becoming ever more relevant as we deal with more and more craziness in the world. (laughs) It speaks to the soul of this show, Michael. I I need to share with you because we live in this world of disruption. We're seeing children suffer with the rapid change. We're seeing parents not know what to do with their children. We're seeing people not know what sectors and businesses and jobs to get into. And there's this whole disruption hurricane happening and people don't know where to center and creativity and innovation is one of those refuges for people yes very much so and it's so strange i gotta tell you part of what inspired me how i got started in all this was that when i was growing up the world was in a very awkward place to say the least uh, in in the u.s there was tremendous divisiveness. And this is the time of the Vietnam War. We had racial strife. And I felt that the only hope for humanity was to awaken, to learn, to think creatively, to develop consciousness and compassion. And It was really in response to the challenges of that time that I focused first on psychology and then on studying the great minds of history. I started with the top with Leonardo da Vinci. And here we are 40 years later, and the world seems even more polarized. Uh, The issues seem even more dramatic Uh, The challenges seem even greater. And yet, at the same time, we're also, Leonardo would be just amazed and inspired to be with us today because we also, despite all the rubbish and the nonsense and the drivel, there's also access to all of the world's knowledge almost instantaneously if you know where to look and how to look. And and this is actually one of the principles in the book, the second principle, dimostrazione, which is to think for yourself, to demonstrate things through your own critical thinking. And if we think back 500 years ago to Leonardo's time, it was hard to think independently because information was hard to get. Books were rare, and if you could find one, It would be in Latin, which you would not have learned unless you came from a noble family. It's it's incredible to think that Leonardo da Vinci, who did not come from a noble family, 
taught himself Latin when he was 40 years old so that he could read the classics as they became available. Now, the challenge to independent thinking is there's so much information and you have to really learn how to focus your mind, think critically, and sort the valid information from all of the spam. The signal from the noise. And this is the thing you said there that just absolutely jumps out. And it's with the abundance comes the scarcity. And the scarcity is both attention and trust. And it's trust in the right data because there's so much stuff out there. And the other thing is what comes out of that is questioning. And I, and I often think about the great tragedy that we're all born as creative beings. We all have massive potential. And that we coach that creativity out of the people. And we stop children asking questions. We ask them to stop interrupting us. And questions and curiosity, as you say, I hope I pronounced that right, is absolutely key to our creative development. Very much so. Very much so. This is the first principle, curiosita. Leonardo was probably the most curious person who ever lived. And what, what makes a genius? It is continuing and deepening the birthright of curiosity that we all come into the world with throughout our adult life. It's, it's asking these questions and with that kind of innocence and openness, but with the sophistication and the training and the technical knowledge of a mind that is, that is trained. So this, this, if you think about, obviously children are the most curious group of people. They also have the freest imagination and the most energy. So when I work with groups around the world, whatever their business or their background, I ask them, would you like to have more energy? And they all say, yeah. Well, here's your prescription. Have a renaissance of your childlike curiosity and let's wake up your imagination. And as you you access your curiosity, and so one one of the exercises in the book about which I've gotten the most positive feedback it's the exercise called 100 Questions. And we, we ask the readers to get a lot of paper and a pen and start writing questions. And don't lift your pen from the paper until you've written at least 100. Some people will write even more than 100. And for most people, that takes about 45 minutes. And what they find is the first 20 questions, 30 questions, they're in their regular mindset. and, and the next 20 or 30 questions, they're getting a little tired and they're wondering, why are they doing this? And they sometimes write questions like, why am I doing this stupid exercise? <laughs> <laughs> but if they stick with it, here's the amazing thing. When they stick with it and they get to the 70th, 80th, 90th, 100th question or beyond, they access, they, it's kind of, it breaks through the habitual, everyday mind. And they shift into this, creative realm where the deeper questions of their life tend to start to surface. So then we have people reflect on the questions they wrote and highlight the ones that have the most energy in them. And then to explore those questions with another free writing session. And I have people now the book came out 20 years ago. So I have people, one guy I know started a business, an entrepreneurial venture based on an idea he got from doing the hundred questions exercise in the book. And, and his, his business involves doing online book reviews. He does these super power. He's trying to review all the greatest books ever written and make them accessible to people. He does this online. People pay him a subscription. He's got thousands of subscribers. And of course, one of the books he reviewed on his site is my book. (laughs) (laughs) It must be a good site then. (laughs) It's a a fabulous, but but he got the idea doing the hundred questions exercise. And he's just one of so many people I know who, who, you know, people need, they need some inspiration and they need some help getting out 
of the their habitual way of thinking. People say, well, I need to think out of the box, but what is the box? The box is your everyday habitual thinking. And the truth is you need to be good in the box. Your habitual thinking serves you and helps you function effectively in this world. A lot of what you need to do at work, a lot of what you need to do in your everyday life is best functioning in an automatic, habitual way. You don't need to do a whole creative problem-solving exercise to figure out how to tie your shoes or brush your teeth. Make those habits and execute the habits. When you do need to think creatively, you need to know how. You need a methodology, and we all need all the help we can get. And in, in studying this now for more than 40 years, I can tell you that the, the most effective methods, one is this is, is stream of consciousness writing. It's, it's writing without editing, going for quantity of writing in one session, and then putting it aside, taking a break. The other is, of course, mind mapping. And this is the methodology generated, uh, developed by my old friend, Tony Buzan, who will tell you he was inspired by the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci and Thomas Edison to create this multidimensional, multisensory way of expressing our ideas that integrates color, imagery, and freedom of thought with structure and analysis and attention to detail and connection. So mind mapping free writing. These are things that all of us want to practice. And, and part of the why I think uh, the Da Vinci book has been so helpful to people is it really, I really try to take the reader through step by step, really practical exercises that will help you get out of the box, generate those breakthrough ideas that will then inspire your energy and your imagination. You know, Michael, if we go back to that childlike curiosity that we all have, the world layers on all this crap on top of it. And it's almost like the 100 questions. When I read this, I was like, it's almost like an onion and you're removing the layers and there's going to be layers on the outside that aren't very valuable, but they get you to the gem on the inside. I really took this out of it that that's why you go for 100 questions and you have the discipline to get there because if you stop, you mightn't get to the gold that's at the bottom of the well. And, and, and there is en the endless riches uh, are available, uh, but you do have to go down to the bottom of the well. <laughs> you mentioned something early, and I think this is important to realize because people will look at people like Leonardo and go, oh, yeah, well, he was born into it. But he had a lot of resilience because he, he didn't have it easy in his early days because people don't often know the true story of his early childhood and the adversity that he broke through. There's no story of great genius and great accomplishment without adversity. There's no human life without adversity. It's obviously what you do with it. The creative mind takes everything as an opportunity to learn, to grow, and to optimize. So, yes, Leonardo's father, uh, Piero, was not married to his mother, Caterina. So the young Leonardo couldn't qualify for membership in the guild of accountancy and notaries that his father was part of. But that turned out to be a blessing because he was sent to vocational school <laughs> to the studio of Verrocchio, where he learned many of the skills that served his ultimate achievements and accomplishments beautifully. And he had all kinds of challenges. He was among maybe the greatest challenge he had was that he was living in Milan, working for the Duke of Milan, and they were invaded by the French, and he had worked for 19 years on creating this beautiful 24-foot-high horse sculpture, which cast in plaster in preparation to cast it in bronze and people of the time people who saw the cast thought it was the most beautiful sculpture ever created but it was never finished because it was destroyed by the invading troops and leonardo became a refugee and this happened to him more than once in his life where the strife of the time uh, uh, caused him to move uh, he 
he wound up in France. The last three years of his life, he spent under the patronage of the, Fra- the French king, Francois I. And I think I think Francois I was was probably the even though everybody knew Leonardo was a genius. I think it was Francois who recognized that Leonardo was perhaps the greatest genius ever to live, and he he put he put Leonardo on retainer, uh, created a beautiful place for him to live right near his his uh, castle in the Loire Valley in in France, and. Leonardo's job was basically to be the chief philosopher, engineer, and storyteller to the king. So that, that's the kind of job I try to get with my well, <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> I was like, I wonder does the government need that? But but it's true, isn't it, man? Because I was thinking about this before, because you mentioned it, emotional intelli- intelligence in the book and that Leonardo studied people and how to get on with them. He sought the opinion of others and feedback, etc. And it made me think that you know this idea of empaths and people who are emotionally intelligent, but they're almost sensitive, and that in the world the way it's shaped today, and hopefully yesterday, so it's hopefully this is fading out in the world, they don't really fit. So they end up in roles where they're kind of hidden. And, and this sensitivity is a gift where they actually can almost see what's coming around corners. And in the past, those type of people were like conciliary to the state, like Leonardo would have been an, an influencer maybe to to governmental figures. But we don't have that anymore. And everything's made from, every, every decision is made from the same place. And they don't consider different points of view. And maybe this gets into a bit of demonstrazione. But it's that piece that seems to be missing in business as well. That, that emotional or that sensitivity. And, and that's real diversity yes. of thought. Yes, well- it's dimostrazione. It's also sensazione, the third principle, which is sensory awareness, listening, seeing what's going on, being fully present. People call it mindfulness today. And Leonardo provides really practical advice on how to sharpen your senses as you get older. Because if you're not engaged in a practical program to sharpen your sensory acuity, well, obviously, you're going to get duller and duller as you get older. We see that we see that all around us, and that dullness is exacerbated by the mindlessness of so much of what's on social media and electronic media overall. Uh, having said that, I can tell you some good news. I, I have to confess I have a bias sample, but I, I really do work as consigliere to senior leaders around the world. And I've done this you know, throughout my career. And the people who engage me are attuned to the importance of empathy. They've risen to be where they are because they are really good at caring for others, at meeting the needs of other people in intelligent and creative ways. And what senior leadership really involves is meeting the needs of of more and more people in more and more complex ways. And the the really best leaders have the ability, I call it it the, uh, it's an empathy scale. Uh, This is in my most recent book, it's called The Art of Connection. Seven Relationship Building Skills Every Leader Needs Now. And I introduced this idea of the ability to move freely along the empathy spectrum. So if you are, if one of your associates or team members or colleagues comes to you with an issue or a problem, you want to be able to be fully empathic and really tune into that. You want to be able to do that for a range of people. Obviously, you want to be able to do that with your spouse, with your children, with the people in your life who are regular parts of your your personal life as well as your professional life. Then let's say you have empathized with a range of different stakeholders and you have to integrate all that information and then you have to make a tough decision that some of those people aren't going to like. You have to be able to shift more to the north of the empathy spectrum 
towards the ability to, to do things because they are in alignment with the higher principle rather than because they will make other people happy or sad now. So this ability to make principled decisions, but to do it with an open heart in a way that is caring for and attuned to the needs of others. Uh, what happens to a lot of people is they, they're empathic, so they're paralyzed and they can't make tough decisions, or they cut themselves off from their own hearts and the hearts of other people because they that's the only way they feel they can operate. Uh, these, these are two very limited ways of being in the world. Uh, great leadership requires us to be able to empathize with different stakeholders and then make principled decisions even when they're not easy and move back and forth along along this this, this spectrum. And uh, what's what I love about the book, it, it's 20 years old, but the exercises are timeless. They will never get old. And it'd be great to share, for example, some of the ways we can improve our sensazione and get a, get ourselves more in touch with others, but also more in touch with ourselves. Well, I'd be happy to do that uh, because this is this, I got to tell you that this was, the whole book was uh, as much fun as I've ever had in my life doing the research for writing the book, going to Leonardo's birthplace, going to the place he died, reading his notebooks over and over again, uh, interviewing the great Da Vinci scholars, going around the world to the museums where I could contemplate his, his works. Uh, but of all of the research, the most fun was the research for how do you develop sensazione. And, and obviously, you know, in your life, in your business, whether you work in an organization or you're an entrepreneur, being sharp is, is a critical advantage. Sharp is a sensory term. It means you're seeing what's going on. It means you really do a better job of listening and tuning in. But it's also the secret of enjoying your life. The Italians understand this. They have la dolce vita, the sweet and soulful life. The French have it too. They call it joie de vivre. But here in the States, I'm telling you, we, we need help. All we have is happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's sad, isn't it, man? But the, I mean, it's, so, it's one of the goals of this show is to just even put a, a, a candlelight, let alone a, a spotlight on how things can get better. Because there's so much opportunity out there. It's about, no, it's about the knowledge. And the knowledge is there, like you said. But it's about knowing where the knowledge is and, and how to access it. But also then having the motivation to change. Well, th so, so the specific exercises that people can do. Uh, and by the way, I think there's, there's an article uh, on my website. If people go to michaelgelb.com and hunt around, there's an article about how to do comparative appreciation exercises. It's, they can download it for free. Uh, there's also the whole chapter of Sensazioni has exercises in listening to music, uh, in, in doing chocolate tasting and wine tasting and appreciating art. And, and this, I'll give you the, the quick secret to all of this appreciation is instead of trying to get the right answer and avoiding the wrong answer, is learning to ask the magic question of yourself and your friends. And the magic question is, what's my impression? What does this remind me of? How do, how do I feel when I listen to this music or drink this wine or look at this painting. And the beauty of the question, the reason it's a magic question is it has no wrong answer. And once people, what, something that keeps us in the box is the fear of making a mistake and the desire to get it right and get the gold star. So we temporarily suspend that when we do sensory appreciation and we just tune in to the color and the aroma and the taste and the mouthfeel and the finish of the wine. And then we share our experience. And the coolest thing about doing this, whether you do it with music and art, wine, it's great to do it all together. Do the music, the wine, the art, the chocolate, do it all together with all your friends, is not only do you experience the music, the wine, the art, the chocolate more deeply when you ask this question. But then when you articulate it, you articulate your experience to your friends. Something about articulating deepens your experience. Plus, when you hear 
your friend's impression of the wine, the music, the chocolate, the art, you get a deeper appreciation, not only of those experiences, but also of your friend. So we do this, we do this. I mean, my wife and I actually pretty much do this every night. We do some kind of mindfulness, joyful wine or chocolate or food appreciation exercise. We listen to beautiful music. We, right now here, we have, uh, our garden is blossoming. We have these peonies, all different types and colors and all over our garden, they're exploding. So we're bringing in the different colors and the different types and we just go back and forth and enjoy the aromas and, and see if we can discern the difference between one type and the other. And then we share it. And I, I mean, you know, we've been married for 13 years. People say, how do you, you guys seem to be so in love. Your relationship seems so happy. You seem so happy and uh, enjoy it because we we're, playing with these kinds of aliveness exercises that are all they're all in the book so people yeah. people get to know me they say oh this is not just some book this is your life you really live this way yes i do no kidding <laughs> yeah yeah and that's why you can talk about it so passionately oh, as well but yeah. I, I read that that you know the relationships that are most lasting and most happy are those people who have new experiences together and and have experiences at all together because when you have a new experience together you have a bond and also that the happiest people in the world are those who are not dependent on each other for their happiness but they have happiness together as a result i thought that was really resonant when you were saying that about your own relationship that you're doing these things and therefore you're keeping the relationship literally alive well and and, and you, you you raise a couple of really important points is that is not being dependent which really means your first impulse or orientation in the relationship isn't to get something for yourself. It is to be empathic and tune in to what the other person needs. And when both people are doing this, it only, it only really works over time if both people are doing this. And there's some discipline to it because you know, our needs tend to arise and we tend to want to fulfill them and get what we need first. And uh, some people are more like that than others. Uh, I'm one of them. So I've learned to suspend what I need or want first and, and tune into what my wife wants or needs first. And I actually, I, I mean, I, I actually passionately focused on doing that and being creative about doing it because what I've learned is my deepest happiness comes from seeing her being happy. And I actually, I've learned that, I think this is part of maturity and just growing up as a human being. I've learned that that's true for all of humanity. I, the greatest happiness I have is, is helping other people experience more dolce in their vita. Uh, my dad, my dad recently had his 91st birthday and we held a wine dinner for him. My wife, who's a, a world-class, brilliant opera singer, uh, she sang a recital for him, and we served his favorite wines. And he stood up, he raised his glass, and he said, today is the happiest day of my life. So I got to tell you, it's one of the happiest days of my life, right? And that's pretty good after 91 years. <laughs> that's awesome. That is awesome. What a way to give back to him who would have made so many sacrifices for you over the years and what a way to reward him back like that is awesome exactly i try to actually to facilitate the same kind of energetic exchange with my corporate clients it to create this is when you when you have a work culture where you can't wait to go to work it's because everyone is really looking after everyone else we're looking after our customers we're looking after all our stakeholders, our vendors. We're looking after our other team members. And this is not some, you know, just bull idea. This is really happening in real companies. It's not always easy. but And it usually begins with a visionary leader who wants to apply these kinds of ideas. So you know, what I really do, how, how do I really get paid? I take these ideas in to companies who want to live these ideals and just need help and coaching. Uh, and, and it's happening. And, and that's once you know that's possible, 
why would you work anywhere else? Uh, and it is possible. It is happening more and more. Uh, so, yeah, that that's 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 part of how we we translate this just from you know the personal uh, enrichment of your life uh, and joie de vivre and dolce vita to shifting the systems in which we operate so that they are predicated on the ex- the, the generous exchange of creative energy rather than the much more territorial, militaristic uh, mindset that has dominated business for far too long. Michael, that, that one's really key because to start with the business, we need to start with ourselves. For the business to succeed, we need to know who we are ourselves and we need to be living this like you do, like you actually live, you, you drink your own Kool-Aid and that's really comes across. But we also need to do that in order for the business to succeed. And I'm going to go back to demonstrazione because that's a, a persistence to test knowledge, to, to, to challenge our paradigm and to challenge what we know. And this goes back to what you were saying at the very start with the social media. And, you know, if, if we follow the same people on Twitter all the time, we'll get the same information. We won't break beyond our paradigm. We won't have curiosity. We won't go out and find new information. These exercises, I think, are really key, and I'd love to share these ones. The ones about challenging our worldview, challenging why we think the way we do, etc. Very much so. One of the great tragedies of our time is that social media and internet advertising have taken advantage of our unconscious tendency towards confirmation bias. So this has always been a, a problem for humans is that you, basically what that means is you want to believe what you want to believe. So you'll, you'll seek out only the evidence that confirms the pre- prejudice or bias of what you want to hear. And it used to be that a university education was designed to help you overcome this bad habit. It was designed to help you understand and appreciate different points of view. And unfortunately, even university educations increasingly today are only reinforcing one point of view and limiting our exposure to multiple points of view. But the ability to, to, to genuinely seek out and listen to and empathize with different perspectives is one of the marks of, of a, a developed and refined intelligence. And this is this is what Leonardo called dimostrazione. He said that you know, we're all subjective. We all tend to have confirmation bias, so we need a discipline to free ourselves from that tendency. And you know, we bring this back to leadership. The great leaders that I've been blessed to work with, and the what many of the great leaders I've studied throughout history are those who purposely brought close to them people with very intelligent, differing points of view. Maybe the most notable of of all was Queen Elizabeth I, who reigned for 45 years as a woman, which was pretty much unprecedented and avoided all these assassination attempts, uh, created the proverbial golden age. She was able to do this because... She had the French ambassador in her court. She had the Spanish ambassador in her court. She had the Vatican ambassador in her court. Now, she spoke French, she spoke Spanish, and she spoke Latin fluently. So in other words, she had the people who, by the way, oh, we should just mention that Philip II of Spain tried to kill her. Uh, uh, Our friend Francois tried to kill her. The Pope sent numerous hit squads to try to kill her. Obviously, they never succeeded. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because she anticipated uh, these differing points of view and these differing uh, uh, desires and was able to uh, outfox her adversaries by anticipating and seeing the world from their point of view. Thomas Jefferson had the smartest minds uh, in the United States in his cabinet. By the way, he used to serve them uh, the finest wine that he he could get. He spent 20% of his presidential budget on fine wine. 
and he'd have these dinner parties and he'd get people to talk, you know, that little bit of wine, a fine wine just took, took edge off people being guarded and armored. And they'd say what they really thought. And he would really listen and understand these differing points of view in order to build uh, coalitions. And, and, and it's what we're lacking today in, in leadership, uh, certainly over here in the, in, in the U.S. We have been lacking it for quite a while is the ability to build consensus and to find common interests and to look at what is in the best interest of all the stakeholders. Instead, we, we polarized uh, and made the world more black and white or red and blue, as they say here. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that, isn't that funny? Because Elizabeth, for example, had the real idea of what diversity is. It's it's not gender, it's not sex, it's not religion, it's the lenses through which you see. It's yes. the context. It's your different your it's your different paradigm. And you're bringing together all these different people with different experiences. Therefore, the answer is always going to be different. This is the thing that people often don't understand. They think diversity is having x number of people of one gender or of one particular ethnic or racial background. And, and there, there's an argument to be made for, for going out of our way to making sure that uh, habitual tendencies to keep people out based on uh, their gender or their ethnicity or so on, that, that is uh, an interference with diversity that, that is inappropriate and, and may require, uh, does require intervention to right that wrong. But it's a mistake to think that just because people have uh, different uh, backgrounds, uh, different ethnicities or different genders, that they will really think independently or in different ways. No, every single human being, whatever their race, whatever their gender, whatever their ethnicity, has billions of unutilized uh, uh, brain cells. And we wanna, we wanna bring them into engagement and, and help each person develop their own creative power, which is much greater than they may have previously imagined. And this is something that, that all of us can do. Again, it's, it's not dependent on ethnicity or background or gender. It's a human birthright. So ultimate diversity is getting each person to express the fullness of, of, of their own thinking. But in order to do that, it, you know, they haven't been trained how to do this. They, they, they haven't been trained how to think like Leonardo da Vinci, which is a big part of why, why we're talking about this. <laughs> Hopefully, and, and you say it in the book, like, for example, the lady in Poland starting to use this in the curriculum. It has to trickle through to the curriculum because we're seeing automation and artificial intelligence take rote task jobs. So jobs that are a case of collecting dots, not connecting dots. And Leonardo... And through your work as well and spreading the message of this creativity and how to actually develop it, we're, we're starting to see that as a huge need. And you said it in a way, and I, I thought this was a nice little, a nice little analogy for, for Leonardo was so far ahead of his time, his sketches of the parachute before there was even airplanes, for example, that in a way, you also were far ahead of your time, about 40 years ago when you, these seeds were planted, but also 20 years ago when you wrote the book. Well, I'm aiming to, to tune into that which is timeless. So the way to be ahead of your time is to always be timeless. Nice. <laughs> you, you don't need to worry about predictions when they come through then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, seriously, I mean, what we're talking about, know, look, the Renaissance means rebirth. Rebirth of what? The genius of Socrates and Plato and the pre-Socratic philosophers. Uh, uh, this is... My real interest is in the core of human wisdom traditions. What, what's, what are the streams of genius and insight that humans have generated from different cultures, from different parts of the world? And when they all come together, when, when, when people from different parts of the world who never were in touch with one another come up with the same insights. You know, I, I, I wrote a book about Thomas Edison with Thomas Edison's great, great, great grandniece. And Edison uh, 
offers advice on developing creativity and innovative thinking, which is in some cases almost word for word the same as Leonardo da Vinci. So here's Edison in the United States in the uh, 19th and early 20th century. And there's Leonardo da Vinci in Italy uh, in the uh, 15th and early 16th century. Coming up with the exact same things, entirely entirely different contexts. So what does that tell you? It tells you there's a good chance that might be true. <laughs> yeah, and he, and he didn't. Go- they didn't Google it either. <laughs> they didn't Google it, right? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, there's no plagiarism checker back then. But but it actually it reminded me that what you're talking about there it jumps ahead to the seventh principle, which is connezioni. Yes, everything connects to everything else. So look for connections. Look for relationships. Look for the big picture, integrate that with the details. Look for systems. Look for, we talked to him before about organizations. And we all, you probably have the cliche in Ireland about uh, uh, one bad apple can spoil the barrel. Uh, And you know, the bad apple in a workplace can be the person who is self-centered and not undermining the the cooperation and the collaboration and the empathy. But a lot of times the reason you get a bad apple that then makes the barrel bad is because the barrel was bad to begin with, the barrel itself. In other words, the structure which that that is all happening. So then you have to ask the question who are the barrel makers? And how can we make better barrels? How can we get the barrel makers to help create systems that bring out the best and minimize bad apples? I love that, man. That's beautiful. And, and well, this is, I, I drew that. That's from the work of uh, a brilliant uh, Philip Zimbardo, who did the uh, famous. Ah, the Stanford right. test. Yeah, yeah. And, so what we're looking at, uh, uh, when I say we, I, I work with a group here in the in, uh, U.S., uh, and now they're global, uh, called Conscious Capitalism, where we really look at how do we structure organizations so that they are designed to bring out the best in everyone uh, uh, instead of just trying to take the most from everyone uh, uh, for short-term profit. So uh, when 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 companies and organizations are organized around only the welfare of shareholders to the potential detriment of everyone else, uh, uh, they, they often do more harm than good. That, and they create a lot of bad barrels and a lot of bad apples. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's, a, that's a lovely. I, I actually never heard that um, analogy before. It works really well. We might jump onto some of the other uh, principles. We're on sfumata. So I'll take you through them all real quick, just to make sure we touch on it. Curiosita, number one, it comes first because curiosity is the beginning of everything. Dimostrazione, think for yourself, be an independent thinker. Third principle, sensazione, sharpen your senses, put more dolce in your vita, practice comparative appreciation. Fourth principle, sfumato, sfumato. It refers to the importance of embracing uncertainty and the unknown. This is the this is where creativity is is generated. Sfumato means going up in smoke. It's an Italian word that art critics coined to refer to the mysterious quality you see in Leonardo's paintings, and it represents this idea of embracing uncertainty. Fifth principle: arte scienza. Balance art and science, logic and imagination. Sixth principle, corporalita, balance the body and the mind. And the seventh principle, connezione, everything connects to everything else. Beautiful. It's a roadmap, as you say, a roadmap for how to guide us through life. How, how, to, how do we get there in, in a joyful state as well? And it would be great to, because we didn't really touch on Sumato to dive a little bit into that because again 
in there, you talk about trusting your gut. And it's one of the things because we're so stressed and we live in this state of fight or flight and cortisol running through our bodies that we, we, we've lost touch with ourselves. It's, it's, it's true. Uh, trust the gut turns out to be literal. And, we, and again, every culture, every tradition around the world, people use terms in every language. They have a term that's something like trust your gut, or people say, I knew it in my, the depth of my heart, or I felt it in my bones, or my blood whispered to me. But your gut, your heart, your bone, your blood don't send you text messages or voicemails. Uh, you have to cultivate a sensitivity uh, to this subtlety within. And let's say you do the 100 questions exercise that's in the Curiosita chapter. Then you take a break and go for a walk in nature in silence. And you let it all percolate together. And then you find you wake up four o'clock that morning with a new idea. So now you write it down in your Da Vinci notebook. And instead of fearing the unknown, you begin to embrace it. You realize that if you challenge your mind, if you uh, apply demonstrazioni and think of lots of different ideas and different perspectives, this will take you out of your habitual way of, of looking at things and learn to be comfortable with that unknowing. Take a break. Go for a walk in nature. Do meditation. Do some Tai Chi. Practice some juggling. Shift out of your habitual modality. Then be receptive. If you're always on your device and you're always Googling something and blathering away, you're just desensitizing yourself to get these messages, which, by the way, are always there for you. It's just a question of, of being quiet enough to actually hear what your gut wants to tell you. I, I think that's one of the beautiful benefits from the awareness of meditation and the awareness of mindfulness that's that's got into the world. And some people are cynical about some of the ways it's being taught, but at least it's being taught now. At least it's on the radar now for people because it will lead to this and it will lead to people becoming more aware of what's inside and what's in what what's inside the onion layer, I suppose. The, the one we didn't touch on was arte scienza. Mm-hmm. Arte scienza, balance art. <laughs> You're showing me up here, man. I should have had a I should have had a drink. I should have had a drink beforehand. <laughs> My about pronunciation is it's a continuing quest to be able to resonate with the way one hears it spoken by the native speaker. So I'm I'm always aiming to sharpen my own ear and and refine it. So unfortunately, most people won't even give it a a go. So I encourage uh, you and everyone, practice. Babies don't get pronunciation right when they're learning to speak. But that's why they're able to learn how to speak, because they're not to say it wrong. They say it, and so, and, and when a baby says uh, a word, we all, whether it's perfect or not, we all encourage the baby to, uh, to speak. So even more so with adult language learning, when you're trying to learn a new language, the best strategy is be like a baby, be like a child. And coming back to, to your question about arte scienza, this is the, the real practice here and we go into this in depth on the how to do it step by step. If you want to embody the principle of arte scienza, learn how to make mind maps. It, it really is a way to integrate the artistic and the logical part of your mind to generate more ideas in less time and make new connections between those ideas. Brilliant. Yeah, and I've, I've reached out to she, your, your friend, Tony Buzan. I've asked him to come on the show because I know you guys have collaborated in the, in the past, but also he's the father of mind mapping. Yes, he is. And I think today might even be an international mind map day, but for me, every day is mind map day. 
<laughs> that's great. Well, that just shows you you're you're still learning. I mean, that's one of the things, the great tragedies I see in corporations is people get the job and think that's the job done. You you never can stop learning. Otherwise, you're going to become redundant. Well, this and this that's more so than ever before uh, is the ability to learn how to learn, and which means learning by definition means you don't know it. Means you will have to embrace the unknown. Sfumato means you you be driven by curiosity. You want to know, but you think for yourself. You pay attention, you listen, you see, and you use your whole brain. You cultivate your energy. That's where corporalita comes in, because without energy, none of this is going to happen. And then you make new connections, connezione. It's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you, and I love the book, and I love your other books as well. And I'd, I'd love if we can reconnect in the future, maybe give it a few months, and then come back on one of your other brilliant books. Is there any message to three groups of people, number one being parents, what would you say to a parent in this world of constant change? Well, you know, each each chapter of the Da Vinci book has a section called Da Vinci for Parents. But the essence of what I would say to parents is you teach by who you are. So focus on embodying the seven principles in your own life, and then your children will will learn because you're modeling the, the principles rather than focusing on directly trying to impart the principles. Brilliant. And, and then to, to students who are making a decision on what to do for the future, what should they, where should they be looking? Make a mind map of all your ideas. Uh, uh, do the 100 questions exercise. Uh, sleep on it, write in, your write in your notebook, rinse and repeat and, uh, until you achieve all your dreams. Nice. And then the last one will focus on business, business leaders, but also business workers. You are a leader, whatever your place is in the, the hierarchy, that, that you can have influence without formal authority. And, and the part of your influence is going to come from your ability to think creatively and, and model creative thinking. And if you do, people are going to want to have you on their team. They're going to want to work with you. And that's one of the ways you make yourself indispensable. Uh, and then, and that's the best way to have job security in a situation where no job is secure because you can always make up a new one because you know how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. Michael, it's been unbelievably brilliant talking to you. The lessons in this book are lifelong lessons. Author of 15 books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Michael J. Gelb, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.